Hello, I'm Alec Avdikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. I recently looked at my profile on Apple Podcasts and found that I have a few more ratings on the platform. Honestly, it feels good to know that I have an audience that cares enough to do that. I know I'm not the absolute best podcast out there, but as long as a few people continue to support me, that warms my heart. So please, keep on giving me honest feedback and ratings from wherever you listen. If you like the show, please tell me about it. If you think my podcast needs some work, again, please tell me. I would love to see what I can do to improve. With that out of the way, let us continue on with the content of this episode. Last week, we discussed two main attributes of King Frederick's infantry. The organization of the different types of infantry and the uniforms of the average infantryman. If you remember from last week, there were the musketeers, which were the most common type of infantry in the Prussian army. This type of infantry had three-cornered hats that the time is famous for. The more elite infantry that one would find on the battlefield was the grenadiers. These soldiers, who ironically did not actually carry grenades for the majority of Frederick's reign, were the men who Frederick used aggressively on the battlefield because they were not likely to break and flee from a fight. The Fusiliers were a lighter type of infantry that were mainly raised from the provinces that Frederick conquered. According to Frederick, these troops were not as loyal as troops raised from Prussia, and were more likely to run away from battle. It's one of those intangible metrics that you hear in older histories. How can one judge with any accuracy how tough an army is compared to another? How can people measure with tangible evidence how motivated a soldier is to win a battle. These intangibles did play a role in the outcome of those battles, however. After all, a soldier who is from a tough background that has high confidence in his abilities will be more likely to, in the heat of battle, to remember how to march, shoot, and fight as he is trained, the man from a demoralized army, and is not as tough in a fight. It's an interesting thought experience to consider how impactful morale has in battle. But anyway, the Fusiliers had lower morale than the Grenadiers, which is why the Fusiliers were often in the second battle line. Frederick usually held the Fusiliers in reserve due to the tactics of the time. Frederick used Grenadiers to overwhelm the enemy defenses and break the enemy lines early in the battle. The Fusiliers were for if stuff hit the fan and the first line didn't succeed. The Fusiliers also had the same type of hat the Grenadiers had. The shape of this hat kind of looks like a cloth ice cream cone that was upside down. The Grenadiers had a brass plate on the front while the Fusiliers hat were made entirely from cloth. This brings up the final subject that we brought up last week. The uniforms the Prussians wore. The Prussian infantry had their hair powdered white and had a long ponytail that reached the hem of their jacket. Their jackets were famously Prussian blue and made from coarse wool that was only meant to last two years on campaign. They wore a white waistcoat underneath the Prussian blue jacket. Below the waistcoat was the breeches. These would also have been white and they covered the midsection of the soldier. 
below the breeches were the gaiters, which were white but became black in 1744. The black shoes and gaiters were meant to hide the stockings, or what we would think of as socks today. This, if you remember from last week, is where I left you at. The cloth dipped in tallow and the disgusting image of an utterly stinky army. So, to move on from last week, I will describe the equipment and tactics the Prussian army used throughout the reign of Frederick the Great. There was one piece of the uniform that I did not include in the last episode because it strongly relates to the equipment the soldiers carried. The soldiers of the infantry would wear a white leather bandolier that was slung over the left shoulder. Before the episode, I didn't know what a bandolier was, so I looked it up. Essentially, it is a strap that carries the ammunition. The Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa famously wore two bandoliers that were full of bullets and made an X across his chest. However, the bandoliers during the time of Frederick the Great carried a cartridge pouch rather than a ton of bullets as modern bandoliers do. Here's what a cartridge pouch is according to Christopher Duffy's book on the army of Frederick the Great. Quote, the pouch was a large box of thick boiled leather stained black. It contained a leather bag, which in turn held an inner box or cartouche. The cartridge pouch was able to carry roughly 80 cartridges. So what is a cartridge? A cartridge was a paper tube that contained the musket ball and black powder needed to fire a shot from the musket. At that time, musket balls were made from lead and weighed 30 grams apiece with the caliber of three quarters of an inch. The soldiers also carried a tin water flask on a white leather strap on their right shoulder. The men, before 1748, would also take turns carrying the field kettle where soup would be cooked in this big pot. But by 1748, they would put the kettle on the pack horses. The knapsack was another one of the soldiers' most important pieces of equipment. It was made from calfskin that was untanned and would carry all kinds of things for the soldiers like spare gaiters, breeches, a knife, tourniquet, hair powder, combs, a screwdriver, gun oil, etc. This would be worn on the left side of the back and would have a small linen bread bag connected to it by a strap that would dangle below the knapsack. This was truly a dizzying amount of stuff for a guy to carry. A sword belt was at a person's midsection and was made of white leather. In 1740, the sword was two feet and six inches long, but would then be shortened in 1744 to simply two feet. By then, the sword was almost entirely useless, but it was a thing of honor to wear one's sword. It's like the old saying from Blackadder when an officer spoke about carrying a swagger stick. I wouldn't dream of facing off a machine gun without one of these. But now on to a much more practical weapon that was extensively used at the time, the bayonet. This weapon was fixed to the end of the musket, making the gun act like a spear in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was triangular in shape and hung from the sword belt. However, after the Battle of Molwitz, Frederick believed that a soldier must always fix his bayonet while he is on duty. The bayonet was, of course, connected to the musket. The musket was made from iron and wood, specifically from the walnut tree. The musket was three feet and five and a half inches tall, yet the fusiliers had a shorter musket. 
The sling that the soldier could use to carry the musket over his back was made from red Russian leather. According to Christopher Duffy's book on the army of Frederick the Great, quote, the Prussian musket remained one of the worst in Europe. Firing was a decidedly uncomfortable experience. For the trigger was set too far forward in the guard, the comb of the butt rose so high as to make aiming almost impossible, and worst of all, the long barrel, the, bay the bayonet, the cylindrical ramrod combined to make the weapon muzzle heavy by three pounds, thereby inducing the soldiers to shoot very low. This made shots fall short of their target into the ground in front of the enemy. One advantage to the Prussian musket was, over the Austrian army was that the uh, Prussian army was equipped with iron ramrods. See, a ramrod is what a soldier put into the barrel of his musket to compress the musket ball and black powder into the bottom of the barrel. I would look up a YouTube clip of someone firing a musket to show how many steps to it took to fire off a single shot during this period. But the fact that the Prussians had an iron ramrod as opposed to a wooden ramrod made the Prussians faster at firing off shots compared to their Austrian counterparts, even if the Prussians had to fire at such a short range in order to hit something. Now that we talked about the equipment the Prussians had, I believe it is time to move on to the tactics the Prussian used in battle. According to Christopher Duffy's book on the army of Frederick the Great, quote, no other army surpassed the Prussian in the speed with which it delivered its fire. It took the Prussians 11 seconds to load a musket and fire back in those days with an additional three seconds to order the troops to ready, present, and fire. In German, this would be, machet euch fertig, schlaget an, feuer. How lovely sounding the German language is, extremely relaxed and not angry sounding in the slightest. The Prussian army used what was called platoon fire, with which it was developed in the War of Spanish Succession by the old Dessauer and the Duke of Marlborough. This system was to make sure that there was continuous volley fire between the three ranks, while one rank had a reserve of loaded muskets that did not fire. The different platoons would fire their muskets in a seemingly random order, with platoons firing in the order of 1, 8, 2, 7, 3, 6, 4, and 5. However, this firing style is meant to maximize the amount of fire taking place from the outside platoons inward, so the fire would start at the flanks and progress inwards, to use military terms. While this may sound practical in theory, according to a quote from a contemporary of this time period, the whole system would go haywire in actual battle. He writes, quote, You begin by firing by platoons, and perhaps two or three would get off orderly volleys, but then would follow a general blazing away. The usual rolling fire when everybody blasted off as soon as he had loaded, when the ranks and files became intermingled, when the first rank was incapable of kneeling, even if it wanted to, the commanders from subalterns to generals would be incapable of getting the mass to perform anything else. They just had to wait until it finally set itself in motion forwards or backwards. So essentially, nobody had the ultimate control over when and how a volley would be fired. 
What followed the musket firing was, of course, the men advancing with a fixed bayonet. According to Christopher Duffy's book, Frederick puts too much emphasis on a bayonet charge when he writes, quote, For the best part of the first two decades of his reign, Frederick was deluded into thinking that the awe-inspiring sight of advancing troops was a more effective weapon than the bullet. This miscalculation must be regarded as his greatest error in his capacity as military technician. This obsession with the bayonet charge caused Frederick to order the troops to permanently have their bayonets fixed during the spring campaign of 1741 and onwards throughout his reign. As we saw at Molwitz, the infantry used a combination of firepower and their bayonets with deadly power to win the fight. However, there will be a few battles in the future that will confirm Frederick's belief that nobody could withstand against a charge from the Prussian infantry. However, with the certain experience of warfare during the 1750s and 1760s, Frederick's mind began to change. He wrote in 1768, quote, The cannon does everything, and the infantry cannot get to grips with the cold steel. Battles are decided by the superiority of fire. That's quite a change of heart, and by the end of the reign, it was said by many veteran commanders that the Prussian infantry, quote, never got nearer the enemy than 100 paces. Therefore, this aspect of warfare during the so-called long 18th century, the character of war changed slightly. Now on to the thing that causes so many people to be confused about warfare in the 1700s. Why did they fight in lines? Why would two armies be packed in so tightly and start shooting at each other from 100 yards away? Why not use bow and arrows instead of muskets? Well, there is a great video from the armchair historian that does help to explain, but I'm going to give my own brief rendition of why linear warfare was practiced. The link to that will be in the description. So a soldier in the War of Austrian Succession was equipped with a musket that was fairly inaccurate and slower to load than a bow and arrow. Why a musket? Well, here's one reason. One is intimidation factor. What is scarier? The whoosh sound an arrow makes, or the bang sound of thousands of muskets firing at once. An enemy formation is more likely to break in front of muskets than arrows. Why are they packed in so tight? The artillery could just take out 10 men at once with the formations they had at the time. While that is true, the reasons the men are in such deep formation, with three ranks in a platoon marching elbow to elbow, is a matter of morale and command and control. If the men were more spread out, the officers would have a harder time controlling the men's movements. Command and control were crucial to how warfare was practiced during the day. Therefore, if the infantry wanted to swiftly turn 90 degrees and march to flank the enemy under fire, the tightly packed formation could do that, while a loosely formed crowd of soldiers could not. Also, on a psychological level, would you feel better if your best friend you are going to war with is even, say, six feet away, while hearing the deafening noises around you? Or would you rather have your best friend as close as possible to help you stay the course? I would personally rather have my best friend as close as they could be in such a horrifying atmosphere where running away would mean certain death. That's another thing, too. With cavalry on the prowl, 
If a formation breaks and runs, it, is, it will most likely be massacred down to the man. But if the infantry does as it is ordered, it has a better chance of living beyond the battle. But why wouldn't the soldiers hide behind something? Why did the soldiers fight out in the open where they could just be picked off by hiding soldiers? Well, the soldiers that were on the defensive did use rocks and trenches and other earthworks to give them cover to use while they were in a defensive battle. However, what if your army was on the offensive? What if in order to defeat the enemy, you needed to take enemy supplies by attacking them? The best way to do that at that time was to march into the hail of loud gunfire with your comrades elbow to elbow and march with a controlled step against the enemy over open ground. If you could get close enough to be within firing range, men would have to stop wherever they were whether they had cover or not. But in the field of Europe, the majority of the times, the men simply had to march and fire over open ground. In the deep forests of North America, this was a different matter, which is why the conventional European style of warfare did not thrive in the War of American Independence. The men marching across open ground also had to march at a fairly slow pace as well. According to Christopher Duffy's book, quote, The first documentary evidence of a prescribed pace in Frederick's reign dates from May 2nd, 1741, when the circular rectangle recommended a rate of 90 to 95 steps to the minute at the beginning of an advance, but thereafter only 70 to 75, which is quite fast enough. 70 beats per minute is fairly slow for someone to be marching across an entire battlefield. Try marching to this beat whenever you get a chance. 70 beats per minute goes something like this. and the soldier would only walk 28 German inches forward per step. That would be around 29 English inches. Overall, this slow step would conserve energy so that when a soldier is actually fighting, he can use all of his strength. However, when deploying into specific formations, the soldier was expected to march 120 beats per minute or half a second per step. After Molwitz, Frederick prided himself on being able to deploy his troops faster than any army on the planet. After all, with the slow deployment of his troops at Molwitz, he lost the surprise factor that could have easily defeated the Austrian army. So why was the Prussian army of Frederick the Great able to win the Battle of Molwitz? I believe it is because of two main factors. The drilling and training that Frederick Wilhelm undertook during the years of peace, and the fact that the Austrians never had to face the Prussians head-on. The Austrian army had been stagnating for years while the Prussian army was on the rise. It was the infantry of the Prussian army with its quick-firing musketry and ability to march as a unit under fire that allowed Frederick's army to win. But will the Austrians learn from their mistakes and finally push the Prussians back out of Silesia? Only time will tell. I believe that is where I shall have to leave you. The extensive equipment an ordinary soldier had to carry and the tactics that allowed the Prussians to be victorious on April 10th, 1741 at Molwitz is the overall gist of this episode. With the middle of summer approaching, I believe I shall say to you all in German, 
Ich wünsche Ihnen einen schönen Sommer. I wish you all a great summer.